today. Well, friends, in 1955, Billy Graham went to Cambridge University to do a, a university mission. And he was preaching on campus at Cambridge at Great St. Mary's Church five nights in a row. Now, he had received a, a lot of criticism leading up to this event from the London newspapers before his arrival. And they were saying things like, what in the world is this backwoods fundamentalist doing uh, talking to our best and brightest at our most prestigious university? That was sort of the attitude of the papers at the time. And so this kind of intimidated Billy Graham a little bit. And he kind of boned up on his philosophers and thinkers. He read some, uh, boned up on his Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Sartre and, and all of these philosophers across history. And he prepared all kinds of quotes to have in his message. And he tried really hard not to look silly. Well, he didn't do very well for the first four nights. And the last night, he decided he was just going to simply preach about the blood of Christ. Forget everything else. Forget trying to look smart to these educated elites of England. He, he decided to simply preach about the cross and to boast in Jesus. And there's a, an old pastor uh, named uh, Dick Lucas from St. Helens Bishop Gate in London. And Dick Lucas was at this event on the fifth night of Billy Graham's mission at, the, at Cambridge University. And this is what Dick Lucas said about that night. He said, I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed room sitting on the floor with a distinguished professor of divinity on one side and a chaplain that would become a bishop on the other side. Now, both of these men were, they were good men in many ways, and, but they were completely against the idea that we needed salvation from our sins by the blood of Christ. And that night... This is what Dick Lucas says. Dear Billy got up and starting from Genesis, he went on right through the whole Bible and he talked about every single blood sacrifice you can imagine. And for 45 minutes, Lucas said, the blood was just flowing through great St. Mary's church. And he said, both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock, about 400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Christ. Woo! Now we're talking. Okay, friends, Dick Lucas, he remembers meeting a, a pastor many years later, and, and, and he, he tells this story about this. He, he, he met a pastor who was a Cambridge graduate years later who was serving at Birmingham Cathedral. And over lunch, Dick said to this man, where did Christian things begin for you? And he says, oh, Cambridge, 1955, Billy Graham, the last night. And so Lucas says, well, how did it happen? And this is his reply. All I remember is that I walked out of Great St. Mary's and for the first time in my life thinking, Christ really died for me. Amen. 
See, friends, for all Billy Graham's efforts to those first four nights to have these kind of complex theological and philosophical messages to impress the best and brightest, what he realized was this profound fact that the simple message of the cross of Christ alone has the power to save. And it is the center of theology. It's the very heart of the gospel. You see, friends, we've been working our way through these foundational questions about the Christian faith. And today's topic is, what is theology? And this word theology, it simply means the study of God. And it really focuses on how we begin to look at life and faith through the lens of God's self-revelation, especially the climactic revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk theology, let me define a couple key terms for you, and you're going to see them on the screen here. There's two disciplines when we talk about theology. The first one is what we call systematic theology. Systematic theology is formulating biblical truths into a cohesive whole. Now, an example of this is the 10 articles of our statement of faith. You talk about the doctrine of God, doctrine of Scripture, you talk about Jesus Christ, the Holy, the Holy Spirit, you talk about the church, end times, all those various systematic ways in which you organize Christian doctrine. See, there's many textbooks of theology that are organized in these systematic ways. They bring together biblical interpretation with other disciplines such as science and history and philosophy, okay? That's systematic theology. The other term you need to know is biblical theology, now, these aren't necessarily opposed to each other, but they're two different approaches. Biblical theology is the study of people, events, and themes in the Bible as they unfold from Genesis to Revelation. So, this discipline lets the Bible's storyline shape the organization of what we believe. It's a way of letting the unfolding events of Scripture be our guide to formulating our theology. It's really about themes across the Bible beginning to end. Now, both are important and both are necessary. And our goal this morning is to learn to think theologically. See, we need to learn to apply the gospel by setting, sitting under the authority of Scripture and letting our increasing understanding of God shape every aspect of our lives as the Holy Spirit does His sanctifying work in us. Now, we can think theologically, and this is what we're going to kind of get to in our series. We're going to th we, we can think theologically about work, about family, about relationships, about politics, about conflict, marriage, gender, stewardship, everything in life. And that's what we're going to be doing as we talk about biblical perspectives later on in this series this summer on various important issues. But first, we need to grasp something really important, friends. That thinking theologically always starts with the cross of Christ. You see, I, I, think, I think the best approach to theology is to start at the center and move our way outwards. Because we need to get the most important reality correct. That God himself, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, has died and risen from the grave to redeem sinners and destroy sin and death and evil forever. From this center, this revelation of Jesus and what he has done, we can then understand everything else and think theologically centered on the gospel about this world and our life in it. So here's why this is so important, okay? Thinking theologically, the truth of the gospel 
should always be forming and reforming us. The truth of the gospel should shape us and reshape us day by day. The gospel's not merely, friends, hear me, the gospel is not merely fire insurance. Did you hear what I said? The gospel is not merely escaping something. It is a calling towards the kingdom of God and all the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. And it affects everything that we see day by day. It's an enduring reality. It's the saving grace we need moment by moment. It's the lens through which we view all of life. So in order to learn how to think theologically, here's what we're going to do today. I want to show you an example of how the Apostle Paul approached some problems in the early church by addressing it through a theological lens. And so we're going to look at the letter to the Galatians, and we're going to see how Paul, just 15 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended, he's addressing a problem within the local church. And, and, and what, I, what we're going to see here is that the book of Galatians is the earliest letter from the Apostle Paul. It's probably the first letter that, that he wrote, the first letter that we have recorded in the New Testament. And he wrote it to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia around the year 48 AD. And it was probably, uh, we could say that the, the book of Galatians is the first example that we have of someone thinking theologically in light of the cross. So, here's what we're going to do as we go through this letter. We're going to actually cover the entire letter of Galatians in some small chunks. And what I'm going to do is explain the situation of the Galatian church and show you Paul's theological response by walking through the whole book of Galatians in 15 minutes or less. <laughs> Everybody ready? Okay. Because what we're going to do after we walk through the book of Galatians is then we're going to reflect on how this letter helps us be formed and reformed by the gospel in our own lives. All right. Ready, set, go. All right. Let's look at the first part of the book of Galatians, that there is no other gospel. Okay. This is chapters one and two. Now let's get acquainted with the situation. All right. The, the, Paul was planting churches in the Roman province of Galatia. It's modern day Turkey. And there were Greek Roman believers who were being confronted by Jewish Christians who said that they not only needed to follow Jesus, but they needed to also adopt all the Jewish laws and outward ritual practices of Judaism. They said, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. What are you doing? You need to become Jewish. Now, this, in Paul's eyes, was a five-alarm fire. This is a threat to the gospel. And so he wrote this letter to set them straight. Now look at verses 6 to 9 of the opening chapter here. I want you to see how strongly Paul felt about this situation. Okay, If you're in your Bibles, grab your Bible and open up to Galatians with me. Chapter 1, and if you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand. We're going to read verses 6 to 9 and see how strongly Paul felt here. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Friends, what Paul is describing here is he's saying that 
the gospel is no longer good news if you need to follow all the laws and rituals and outward motions of earning God's favor. Adding, in other words, adding a little works righteousness to the gospel of grace spoils the whole thing. Friends, what he describes here about God's curse is that eternity is at stake in this question. See, Paul feels so passionately about this, he gave an example from his own life. So if you see how the text flows here, he highlights a significant rift in the apostles themselves during the early years of the church. Now in chapter 2, okay, go over to chapter 2 now, Paul explains how he went to Jerusalem. Okay, after he'd been serving for many years, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the original apostles and explain the gospel message that he'd been sharing. He wants to see if they're saying the same message. They found that their messages aligned and that Paul's message of grace to the Gentiles was supported by the other believers in Jerusalem. Okay, we're all good there. Everybody's in alignment. But then the problem started. See, he says in chapter 2, when Peter started coming to Antioch, he wouldn't eat with the Greek Christians. See, friends, you need to understand this about the ancient world. Table fellowship, like eating together, that's an incredible bond that you have in that culture. So for, it was so important. And so for, for Peter, by not eating with the Greek believers, Peter was breaking fellowship with them. He was cutting them off from the family of God thereby elevating himself and the other Jewish Christians as the real believers. He was saying with his actions, you aren't doing enough to be worthy of Jesus. And Paul knew this was wrong, and so he public, publicly confronts Peter. Pick it up in chapter 2, verse 14. Look at what he says. Chapter 2, verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, now that's the Aramaic name for Peter, okay? I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow the Jewish customs? Friends, Peter wasn't even living up to his own standards. Paul isn't afraid to point out Peter's hypocrisy precisely because everything hinges on the gospel of grace. So in Paul's eyes, and this is what we have to understand about the gospel, in Paul's eyes, putting extra burdens or requirements on top of the free gift of forgiveness, on top of the grace that is shown to us to be adopted into God's family, putting extra burdens and requirements destroys the gospel. This is why he goes on to describe the proper perspective that we should have. So skip down a couple verses now to verses 21, or 20 and 21 of chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Friends, you've got to understand this about Paul. He says, I have died to myself. You've got to understand about Paul. He is, of anybody who could brag about their credibility, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
For the law, he says, I was perfect. I did all the rituals. I followed all the rules. I had the best teacher in all of Judaism. And we see Paul say, if I could brag, I could. But I have died to myself that I would sit squarely under the grace of God and the God alone. Crucifying his sin nature on the cross, being freed from the slavery to earn favor with God. He lives by faith because there is no other way. There's no other gospel. Okay, that's chapters one and two. Let's go on to chapters three and four. There's a series of contrasts here that I want to point out. All right. So in chapters three and four, this is where Paul gets into some deep theology. He makes nine direct quotations from the Old Testament to ground his claims that salvation by grace through faith is the only gospel. Now, this is so important. I love how he quotes the Old Testament because he's speaking to Jewish Christians. This is the Bible. Like, this is their text. And he's saying, you got to understand that the very text you're looking to to call people to the law is the very one that calls them to faith. So there's a series of contrasts here. In these chapters, and Paul drives them home by asking three questions. So you're going to see them on the screen. First, he talks about faith versus works. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Look at what he says. This is the question that he asks. Pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, he says. Who has bewitched you? Man, I would love to see Paul say this. It's great. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So I ask again, does God give you his spirit by the, by, and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then listen to this last one. Understand then that those who have faith are children of God. The Judaizers, the ones who are coming in and saying, you got to follow the law. They're saying, in order to be a real child of Abraham, you got to follow all this. And Paul quotes their own guy, Abraham. And he says, look, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. You understand that the real children of Abraham are the ones who have faith. It's always been about trusting God, not earning And so the question is, did you receive the Spirit by works or by faith? In other words, did your salvation depend on what you could do, or did you receive it as a gift? Trusting in Christ's work on your behalf. Okay, so that's the first contrast. He says, you started off great. Don't Don't lose your way. Don't try earning again. Stand in the gospel of grace. Okay, here's the second contrast. Promise versus law. Go down to verse 21 and 22 of chapter 3. This is the other question he asks. I love how he asks questions. He says, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come through the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See the question he asks here? Is the law opposed to the promise? In other words, God says he's going to redeem 
Is the law something that was worthless? What was the whole point? Paul says, no, it's not that it's, it's opposed to it. He says that we have to understand the law was a temporary guardian. You could not achieve the new birth. You can't be made a new creation by trying harder. But it pointed ahead to Jesus. The promise of life through him and his substitutionary death and resurrection to set us free from the law. So that's the other one is the law opposed to, we see the, 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 the contrast there. Now the last one is freedom versus slavery. And this is where he really drives it home. Go to chapter four, verses eight through 11. He asks this question to talk about being free in Christ versus enslaved by earning. Pick it up in verse eight. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you, for somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. You see how he's getting kind of exasperated at this situation because he draws their attention to this technical term, which is the forces. Okay, you might know this from Galatians. There's another, just previously, earlier on in chapter 4, Paul describes a term that he calls the elemental spiritual forces. And it's a, it's, a, it's a very important phrase because this is a term that refers in the ancient Greek world, it refers to the base sinful instinct of humanity. The natural motivations that we ha have, the underlying uh, way of thinking and acting that is across all humanity and all cultures at all times. And so in chapter 4, Paul had said that both, and this is clear friends, both Jewish law keeping as a means of earning God's favor and pagan idolatry, making the gods happy, they're both built on the base instinct, the elemental spiritual forces, the keeping score the posturing, the feeling good enough about yourself so you can put your head down at night. That's what drives us. That's, that's the deeper, the earning favor, that, that, that drive. It's it, what Paul calls this base motivation. He says it's weak and miserable. It will make you miserable to posture yourself, to earn, to get on the treadmill of keeping score and feeling that you have to somehow measure up to be good enough. And Paul says, don't fall back into that comparison game. Don't succumb to the lie that you have to measure up. It will enslave you. And he uses this illustration of Hagar and Sarah, which we don't have time to talk about, to illustrate this freedom and slavery. But he, he then turns in chapters 5 and 6 to talk about our freedom in Christ. And this is where he lands. Friends, for Paul... Freedom is not about choosing to do whatever you want. Freedom is not unfettered choice so you can be authentic in this self-expression. He's talking about freedom from proving that you have to be good enough. Freedom from the tyranny of comparison to others. Freedom from the oppressive ways in this, in this world that ask you to conform to something to be accepted. 
so listen to how Paul describes this freedom. Look at chapter 5 and pick it up in verse 13. You, brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want. You are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, friends, stop there for a second. What he's describing is he says, when we walk by the Spirit, we fulfill the law. That we have the unique privilege on this side of the cross to have the indwelling Spirit of God in us. How incredible. To lead us freely into fellowship with God, to empower us to be in alignment with his ways. See, when we walk by the Spirit, this is, there's a particular kind of fruit that Paul says that we will see in our lives. Look at verse 22, chapter 5. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, I want those things in my life. And what Paul says at the end of this letter is he reflects on the goodness that can be had as we walk in the Spirit of God is he lands with this statement. And this is what will kind of close our, our quick overview of the book. Let's go over to chapter 6 now, verse 14. This is where he really drives it home. How do we walk in the Spirit? How do we see this kind of fruit? Chapter 6, verse 14. This is what he considers when he considers the crisis in the Galatian church and the gospel being at stake. He says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Friends, this is Paul's description of how the gospel forms and reforms, shapes and reshapes, die to self, continue to die to self day by day, living in the grace of God. See, we need to reflect here for a few moments about what this means for Paul when he says, boast in Christ alone. Okay, in the ancient world, let me illustrate this for you. All right, if somebody's timing me, I'm done with the overview, okay? Did I make it? I don't know. Okay. In the ancient world, boasting was about warfare. Boasting was how you got yourself confident to charge the enemy. Boasting is about your identity. It's where does your confidence come from? It's about where you draw your strength, who or what you rely on. That's what you boast in. See, Paul says that everyone will boast in something. You, dear friend, will boast in someone or something. And Paul says, stop boasting in other things. Boast in Christ and what he's done for you. Okay, this book of Galatians, the great reformer Martin Luther, he wrote a commentary on the book of Galatians. 
And in his commentary on Galatians, this is what he says. He says, when things get real, when challenges come, when we're facing trials and difficulties, when Satan accuses you, instinctively turn to whatever you boast in. He says that when suffering or threats or difficulty, they reveal where your true identity lies, where your confidence lies. See, friends, often in our sinful flesh, when you're confronted with a challenge, a difficulty, a trial, or, or, or you feel inadequate, whatever it is, in our flesh, we will often say things like this. Yeah, well, but I'm a good mother or father. Or, yeah, but, but I'm a good person. I, I've helped lots of people. We'll think things like, well, but at least I'm not like other people who make really bad choices. Like, I'm a little bit better. Or maybe we'll think, I deserve better than this. Things will turn around. See, friends, in our, in our sinful, in our dark hearts, we will get defensive and our instinct will always point to ways that we measure up. That we can prove that we're good. We'll turn back to what Paul calls those weak and miserable forces. Friends, an example of this in our culture is the self-esteem movement. It is all about boasting. Boasting in myself. Finding ways to make myself feel good about myself today so that, so that I can tackle whatever's in front of me. And what the scriptures say, dear friends, is no boast in Jesus. Boast in the cross. Boast in his blood. Boast in your weakness and inadequacy. Humble yourself before him. See, friends, we should simultaneously say, I am nothing and Christ is everything. Therefore, we're, we're, we're worthless and worthy at the same time because you're clothed in the blood of Christ. You're washed by, by what he has done and, and, and you, you don't have to let uh, other things determine your identity. Friends, boasting, you have to understand this, boasting is a heart issue. It's concerned with what delights us, what captivates us. And when you boast in Christ, when your identity's in him and what he's done for you on the cross, lesser things that had claimed your identity become just things. They don't captivate you in that way anymore. They're not shackled with the burden, these things that can be good, but you make them ultimate. You shackle them with the burden of making you feel good about yourself. Those things cannot carry that weight. They will crumble and fall. See, when money is not your identity, you can give it away freely. When your work is not your identity, you can serve God and do what is right, whether you're commended or not. When your kids are not your identity, you can love them freely and encourage them to be molded into the image of Christ, not into your image. And when your reputation isn't your identity, then criticism isn't the end of the world because you remember that you're justified before God. By his kindness, his love poured out on the cross as Jesus died in your place that you, in the ultimate sense, are declared right before the only judge 
whose eyes actually matter. Friends, here's our lesson today. All of our theology, our application to daily life, must be cross-centered and cross-shaped. We need a fresh sight of the cross. We need to have our hearts captivated by Jesus. Nothing else has the power to stir the deep affections of the human heart like Christ crucified. Friends, just like Billy Graham, remember, as D Dick Lucas said, Dear Billy, he stood up in front and just said, Jesus died for you. Let us center our theology on the cross, the blood of Christ poured out on us, that we could be washed clean, that our, his body was broken so we could be healed. He was forsaken that we could be restored. Pure grace, a gift we don't deserve. Friends, there's an old hymn by Lewis Jones from 1899 that's called Power in the Blood. And I want to read a few lines from it for you. Would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you over evil a victory win? Would you be free from your passion and pride? Come for a cleansing to Calvary's side. Calvary's tide, excuse me. Would you be whiter, yes, brighter than snow? Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. Would you do service for Jesus, your King? Would you live daily his praises to sing? Oh, there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Yes, there's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, let us never forget this truth. And as we, we turn to a time now, just a little bit of interaction, and as we celebrate communion, Lord, we want to always have our whole life centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that would shape all of who we are and what we do. That we see in the book of Galatians how the Apostle Paul addressed a problem. He's looking at all things through the lens of faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done and not what we could do. Lord, let the blood of Christ form and reform us, shape and reshape us the truth of what you have done in history. Lord, let that be the anthem that we sing, the, the thing that draws us nearer into fellowship with you day by day as you sanctify us to be like Jesus. We love you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.